Welcome to the NCA podcast. We are so glad to have you here today. And today our guest comes from the University of Notre Dame. So Nicole, do you wanna tell us about yourself and what you do at the university? Uh, sure, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So um, I'm a professor in the law school and I have been for over 20 years. Um, and I write about and teach about among other things, education policy and education law. And I've also been very involved in the Alliance for Catholic Education, particularly in the work that the, um, the ACE program does to support Catholic schools um, participating in, in the church and its efforts to advocate for uh, parental choice in education. Nicole, I would never have guessed you've been there 20, doing that for 20 years. <laughs> 22, actually. We're starting our 23rd year here. Crazy. So um, you say, where were you before? How did you end up at the University of Notre Dame? Uh, so I, I, I graduated from law school in 1985. And then I spent, um, like a lot of young lawyers, I clerked for a couple of years and, uh, for judges. And, um, and then I spent two years working at a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called the Institute for Justice. And one of the things that the Institute for Justice does is uh, it defends school choice programs across the country. Uh, typically what the IJ, as it's known, uh, will represent parents who, who want to participate in parental choice programs and send their kids to private or faith-based schools through those programs. So IJ will ask the court to intervene and defend on behalf of the state that's defending a program. Um, and so this is a pretty common, this has been going on forever. And as a young attorney, I was a part of the team that defended um, the first uh, modern voucher program in the United States, which was the program in Milwaukee. And I was um, a very junior member of that team. Um, I also was uh, tangentially early on, I was involved in the litigation that defended the Cleveland Parental Choice Program that eventually went to the United States Supreme Court in, in a case called Zelman. Um, the court held in 2002 that it didn't violate the Establishment Clause to send kids to use public funds um, to enable children to go to faith-based schools. And I also was involved in litigation uh, challenging, a, uh, challenging a program in Maine, a voucher program called the Town Tuitioning Program in Maine, which enables uh, parents who live in a town without a high school to send their kids to all uh, private schools except for religious schools. So we challenged in 1997, the exclusion of religious schools from Maine's Town Tuitioning Program um, and we lost. I think we'll probably get to this uh, in a few minutes, but uh, it was a big week for us last week. Me, because the court finally accepted that issue in a case called Carson versus Meekin. So that issue that I was involved in at IJ as a baby lawyer will finally be resolved by the United States Supreme Court 25 years later. Um, so I did those things. Um, and then we had the opportunity really providentially to my husband is also a law professor. So we were asked if we were interested in interviewing um, at the at Notre Dame Law School, and we did, and we got the jobs and we moved here in 1999. Right? Yeah, that's how my daughters. And we've been here ever since. So we love it here. Very dedicated to Catholic schools, both at the higher education level and the K-12 level. That is a great background. Thank you for sharing that. And it shows your commitment started very young. I think it's fascinating that as a young attorney, this is the kind of law you want to practice or be involved in. And I think 
That's fantastic. One thing you didn't mention, which is the first time I was ever introduced to you, was your book, um, Lost Co Classroom, Lost Community. And that book, it's right there on my shelf. You can't see it, but it is. It, it's, it's a great book. And I think it speaks to why we need Catholic schools and Catholic education. Could you talk about that just for a little bit and then we'll get to those court cases? Sure. So in 2014, together with a colleague, Peg Brittig, who is an economist and a lawyer, um, I published a book. Uh, it is called Lost Classroom, Lost Community. And um, this book did something that no one had done before. So most arguments about Catholic schools, um, about parental choice, tend to focus on the right thing, which is whether these are, are good schools and good places for children to be educated and the importance of Catholic schools, the importance of faith-based schools, the importance of parental choice for children um, and for the and for their parents. Uh, our book actually taught, focused on the neighborhood. So we um, we I had a attended a conference in nineteen oh gosh not nineteen ninety so probably in two thousand and ten eleven I attended a conference in Washington D.C. about faith based schools and inner city kids, and I. Well, I just overheard a conversation in the hallway and I heard someone say, you know, when the schools close, it's the end of the neighborhood. It's such a terrible thing when the Catholic schools close in these neighborhoods. It's devastating for the neighborhoods. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting insight that was different than asking how the schools, why the schools were important for the kids. They were asking, they were saying, these people were saying the schools were important for communities. So I came back to Notre Dame and I, I talked to my friend Peg, who is a great empirical mind. And I said, this is such an interesting claim. And she said, well, let's just run with it and see what we can find. So it was a labor of love. So several years later, we published this book. Um, the book tried to measure, what well, did measure, the effects of Catholic school closures on um, crime, serious crime, as well as what we call social capital, what social scientists call social capital, which is basically um, social cohesion in neighborhoods, how much do people trust each other? How much do they look out for each other? How much do they keep an eye on the kids when they're playing in the street? Um, and what we found um, was that when Catholic schools closed, and we studied Chicago and Philadelphia. So when Catholic schools closed in Chicago and Philadelphia, the neighborhoods became more dangerous and less socially cohesive. Um, and, and we found um, that an open Catholic school in Chicago was predictive of about 30% less serious crime during the period that we studied. Um, and so that was that was our book. Um, it, it made, a, I think, a unique contribution because it, it was something that no one had really talked about before. Um, we think that it is an important thing, uh, both for policymakers and for the church to keep in mind because these are fragile institutions, uh, but they're fragile institutions in fragile neighborhoods. Um, and the neighborhoods need these institutions to, to survive and to thrive as do the children and the families that are served by them. I, I could not agree more. And then the book, I think because I'm familiar with Chicago, especially it, it spoke to me and it's like, when we leave, something is lost for the for the greater good. And it's not just about the children. It is about the economy of the area. It's about crime. It's about a lot of things. So I just wanted to talk about this book a little bit because again, it's one of my favorite books about Catholic education because I think it speaks to something that we forget about. Um, so there's our contribution to the common good. There's one kind of cool anecdote that I don't get to tell very often, but um, I always, early in this research project, um, 
we were we we're just sort of figuring it out. We weren't even sure we could get the data to to do the study, but we were lucky. And Peg is nothing if not doggedly persistent. Um, but early on, um, there were a group of bishops at, at Notre Dame, and I met with them, talked about Catholic schools and parental choice. And one of them was um, Wilton Gregory, and um, Bishop uh, Archbishop then Archbishop Gregory had um, gone to a Catholic school on the south side of Chicago. He was the integrator. He was the first black kid at the school and he was Protestant when he came. He told the story. He told me he went because he was getting in trouble at school. So his parents asked around and the, the fr their friends said, if your kids are getting in trouble, you need to send them to the Catholic school. So he went to the Catholic school where he converted um, and obviously is now uh, relatively important in the church. Uh, and I asked him and he was he was also a, um, an auxiliary bishop in Chicago. So I asked him, um, I ask him, why would the neighborhoods get worse if the schools close? And he said two things that have always really stuck with me and they made it into our book um, because we don't really uh, know why they, these schools are important. We don't really say, claim to prove that we have the answer to that question. We just prove that they are. And he said, the first thing is that sometimes um, the Catholic school is, is sort of one of the most important and most functional um, institutions left in a, in a poor neighborhood. And so the, it's sort of the last straw when it leaves this, the neighborhood sort of unravels. Um, but the other thing he said, which I think is just uh, really important for Catholic educators everywhere to remember, it's a great insight. He said, well, um, as long as we're there, we're saying to those community and the families in that community that there is hope for you, we believe in you and your life can get better. Um, and so I, I've always, and we use that in our book um, I don't think we say him, say his name, but I'm going to say his name now. I just did. Um, but we do use that in our book as one of the insights about why are these in schools so important? We say, well, maybe it's just a symbol to the neighborhood that the neighborhoods are worth investing in and the families are worth investing in and these kids should have a future. That, that's awesome. That's a great story. And, and I could not agree more. And I would suspect that all schools kind of have that impact on a neighborhood schools or places of hope, Catholic schools especially, are places of hope and, and are, are needed there. So um, let's talk about some of those court cases and I wanna do it in this way. Can okay. you tell me what you think is the court case that had most impact on Catholic education? Ever? Ever. <laughs> Ever. Sisters versus um, the society of the sisters. <laughs> Well, it's hard to it's hard to single out one. I mean, um, I do think Pierce versus Society of Sisters was really important. Pierce versus Society of Sisters held that uh, that parents could not be made by the state to send their kids to public schools. So Pierce was in a, in a case in the 1920s um, in Oregon where the Oregon had basically banned private education. Um, so that that stands for the proposition. Um, that parents have the right to choose where to educate their children. Um, so the next most important case uh, is a case called Everson, which is decided in the in the 40s, which it really sort of sets up the idea that um, as long as aid is being provided to schools in a religion neutral way, um, then it then you can constitutionally provide. Um, public aid to students attending private schools. Um, and that, that was a case about busing. Now there's a long road between Everson and the case that I mentioned earlier, uh, 
So the case that I mentioned earlier um, today, which is a case called Zellman. So Zellman um, is, a, is, a, is the case in 2002 that said that it was a constitution, it was not a violation of the establishment clause um, to provide public funds to kids uh, in order to enable them to attend faith-based schools. Um, I, I don't, so, so um, and then I, I wanna talk, uh, and then, and then the next question and the question on the ground now is whether it's constitutional to just choose not to provide those funds because you just say, you don't, if you're a religious school, you need not apply. Um, I think um, these fights over parental choice and, and then over, over or the funding of schools, um, it's hard to just pick out one that's so important. I think it's really important to keep in mind that our, our, the, the bishops American Catholics have been fighting for parental choice in education since the mid 19th century uh, and making the argument that it is unjust um, to deny uh, children and school, to deny children um, public funds simply because their parents wish to educate them in accordance with their faith in a faith-based school. And it's unjust to deny um, faith-based schools, Catholic schools in particular, uh, public funds because they are Catholic. Um, that Catholic schools have long contributed to the common good. So I think there's a sort of an arc of cases that deals with these funding questions. And it, so in, um, in the 1850s, Archbishop Hughes, known as Dagger John Hughes, began making these arguments for public funding on equality grounds. Um, and there's this arc of cases that um, will probably, it, it, there's a culmination of it this year. Expe we're expecting the culmination of it this year. Um, we, we have, we've satisfied, we've, we've established constitutionally that parents have the right to choose a religious school for their children, not necessarily to have it paid for. We've established um, the proposition that now that it does not, um, that it does not violate the establishment clause to send, to give kids public funds, to send their kids to, to faith-based schools. Um, Last year in a case called Espinosa versus Montana, we thought we'd established the proposition that it was unconstitutional to exclude faith-based schools from, um, from a, uh, programs of parental choice. It's a complicated legal little fight that's going on now, but since Espinosa, um, the First Circuit Court of Appeals in the case called, this case called Carson versus Macon, um, said it was okay to do so, notwithstanding the fact, honestly, that the Supreme Court had just said it wasn't okay. It's a little, like it's in the weeds to explain what it was about, but Espinoza the, uh, said that when you couldn't exclude a, a religious school um, from a choice program because it was religious. Um, and then, and it kind of left open the question whether you could just choose not to pay for religious stuff and whether that's different. There was a dissent I mean, a concurrence by Justice Gorsuch was like, that's a distinction without a difference. So um, the Supreme Court just last week granted in this case, this main case called Carson, um, that case squarely presents the question, can you choose as a state to provide parental choice, but say to the parents, you may not use it for religious education. Um, because in Maine, you can use your public funds to go to any school in the world any state, any country, you can go to the most elite prep school in the world. The only thing you can't do with your money is to go to a school that is authentically religious. Um, I was involved in, as I mentioned, early litigation, challenging that program very unsuccessfully 25 years ago. I'm grateful that the courts finally gonna resolve it. I was also, uh, my 
that through the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Initiative uh, filed a brief on behalf of um, Catholic, Jewish, and Muslim schools in uh, urging the court to take the case, Carson versus Macon, this spring. And in our brief, we represented the Partnership for Inner, Inner City Education, which you probably know partnership schools are um, nine Catholic schools that serve desperately poor children in New York and Cleveland. We represented the Council for Islamic Schools in North America, which they have about 25,000 kids enrolled in their Islamic schools. And we represented the Orthodox Union, which um, probably about 200,000 Jewish day school students were represented in this brief. And the argument that we made in the brief was that for people who take their faith seriously, for Muslim schools, Jewish schools, Jewish day schools, Catholic schools, there is no such thing. There's no difference between being religious and doing religious things. So to discriminate against a school because it does religious things is to discriminate against it for its faith. And that's what we have urged the court to say. And we hope the court will say next term in Carson. And that will really end, I mean, that will be the arc of these cases that ultimately the fight that started by Dagger John Hughes in the 1850s for non-discrimination against faith-based schools and the right of parents to authentically educate their children according to the tenets of their faith um, is vindicated in the Supreme Court. So it's been a great, it's been a huge year, uh, a huge decade or two. Uh, but the last year between the decision in Espinoza and now this grant in Carson versus Macon, it was, it's really a momentous time, I think, for Catholic education. Yeah, and the main thing surprised me because I thought it was settled. And then I'm like, oh no, we're still going to fight about this. <laughs> it's a really, it was, I, I wasn't surprised because I, I knew who was, who was on that panel, but um, it was surprised, I mean, I wasn't surprised. Interestingly, um, shortly before the court decided whether to take the main case, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals um, invalidated an identical program in Vermont. Um, Vermont also has a town tuition program. It also discriminates against religious schools. And the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Vermont, New York, couple of states, they said that was unconstitutional. So now we have a, a very clear division in the courts, this courts interpreting what Espinoza stands for, which is one of the reasons the Supreme Court had to take the case because that is just too much uncertainty. So right. hopefully we'll get good news. I, I'm optimistic. Um, and uh, well, that'll clarify. I mean, it, the court doesn't the court makes clear in Espinoza, and it will again in Carson, no state has to have frontal choice. It's just if they do, they can't choose to not fund religious schools. Right. You would think. So, so we'll, we will stay, stay tuned for that. You, so you've been involved in, in these cases for 25 years. What should we worry about? Because I hear people worry about the government's going to... Put themselves in the middle of our business. We won't be able to do what we want in our schools. What should we be concerned about or worried about or what worries you about all these cases? So um, I think this is a, is a very important and positive moment for religious liberty in the United States in terms of the law. We are winning. So as you know, and as your listeners probably know, um, 
basically around the same time the court decides to grant this Carson case and Maine case, they, they, they decide um, in, this, in another case called Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, that the city of Philadelphia violated the free exercise rights of Catholic charities because they excluded them from the foster care system because Catholic charities um, refused to place children in same-sex families um, with same-sex couples. Um, this is a really important, I mean, there's lots of fights about whether Fulton should have gone farther, but it was a unanimous decision that that discrimination was unconstitutional. Um, Espinoza versus Montana is an incredibly important decision about public funding. So I think we're winning the legal battles and that's great, but but there are cultural battles that we're not necessarily winning. And, and if you ask me what I worry about, I worry that um, there will be increasing um, incursions um, on religious, the religious freedom of, of schools. Um, I, I think they could come with public funding, but they might not, right? So if you think back to the Hobby Lobby case, which is the contraception mandate case from some years ago where the court said it was violated the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to require Hobby Lobby to provide contraception um, that was an abortifacient uh, to its employees. Hobby Lobby didn't get public funds. They just got regulated. So I think that it's, I worry about regulation. It might be marginally um, more likely to happen if uh, the, the kinds of regulations that would really cut into the autonomy and religious liberty of Catholic schools might be marginally more likely with public funds. But I don't think that public funds are going to be the deciding factor. There is pressure to regulate our schools in ways that would violate what we believe to be our religious liberty and that would cut deep into the heart of our autonomy. Pressure about curricular mandates, pressure about hiring and firing, student selection, that's, um, those pressures are gonna come money or not money. That, they may come more quickly with the money. Those are political battles. I think by and large, we can fight them in the courts. By and large, that's important to just sort of fight them politically as well. So what do I worry about? Um, I do worry about incursions of autonomy and religious liberty of our Catholic schools. I, I worry about that a lot. Um, and I, I have limited, I don't think that we'll be able to fight them all legally. So I think eventually we're going to have to make brave decisions. Um, I worry a little bit. Um, so in Maine, when I was involved in the Maine decision, when I was early on involved in this Maine litigation, um, we went up to Maine. It was fun. I was 27. We got to go to Portland and eat lobster. It was super fun. Um, but I, uh, I, when we were doing some of the background for the history of the first litigation challenged the exclusion of religious schools from Maine's town tuitioning program, we learned that there had been a couple of high schools in Maine that were 100% dependent on tuitioning. And when they, because it used to, it used to be able to get the religious money at religious schools in Maine until 1988, I think, maybe a little later. Anyway, when they pulled the public funds, those schools closed. And so if you ask me what I worry about the most is that like that we uh, it, that we are we lose we it's not we just sort of become expectant and dependent on public funds. Um, they're a great gift to our schools. Uh, the, my kids go to a Catholic school in South Bend, Indiana, about a third of the kids are on vouchers and um, Indiana just exploded its eligibility requirements. So I think upwards of 75% of the kids will get some funds next year. And that's awesome. And it's just, it's one of the best elementary schools in South Bend, Indiana. And it's unjust if it wouldn't 
they didn't get public funds. But what if the money goes away? What if we're, we're afraid to walk away? If there are these rules that pop up that infringe on our religious liberty, that's what I worry about. Like, how do we think strategically? We fully participate in these programs. We welcome the children who couldn't afford to be at our schools if it wasn't for these programs, but we're strategic enough to understand that if those resources go away, we're still called to be there for the kids. That, that, that's what I worry, that's my, I worry about the autonomy stuff, but not necessarily tied to funds, it's gonna happen. And I worry about the dependency um, and how do we negotiate that? How do I, we I agree. I left Indiana and came back nine years later. And in that time, so many Catholic schools are dependent on that money that they would close now. And it's, I don't even know how it happened so quickly, but it did. But you're right. For those of our listeners who aren't from Indiana, you, I think it's like 147000 a couple can make with two children and and receive a voucher. So that's going to mean the possibility of more and more children in our schools that will use that voucher to to pay the tuition. And again, that it's that it's not a problem on the surface. It's a good thing. But if we don't plan for that and as you say, think about it strategically, what happens if this goes away, we will be in trouble. So 300%, the, the, the cutoff now for a voucher in Indiana is 300% of poverty, which is like you say, $150,000. Um, and so it, that's a lot of money. And you know, parents who were used to paying the tuition won't pay it anymore um, in, in West Virginia. And I think these programs are awesome. Look, I just think it's great. I'm not saying it's bad. I mean, West Virginia just enacted an education savings account and it's almost universal eligibility. So there will be, I think it's 85% of the students in the state of West Virginia will be eligible for the public funding of private schools in the fall. Um, there are only like 18 Catholic schools in the whole state, but um, but but that, there's enough money that new schools can open. I mean, I was on a Zoom call a few weeks about, about something else, not even about school choice, but at one of the bishops, an Indiana bishop who has some very poor communities, not my own, but another bishop said, I want to open a school. I all of a sudden I can open a school. I can reopen a school that closed. That's all. It's not great. I mean, I think that's just wonderful. And um, but it, yeah, I do worry. I worry that we'll get used to it. And um, yeah, and it happens quickly before we even know it. So um, you mentioned you're a professor, so you're a teacher. So my question is, what's the best lesson you've ever taught, and what's the best lesson you've ever learned? Wow. Philosophical for a moment. <laughs> I'm trying to think of an education lesson. Um, most people refer to their family. I'll just tell you. I ask this question very frequently. And most people talk about their family or a friend, someone who taught them something really important. It's hardly ever related to school, which I find really interesting. Yeah, so I'm going to tell a story about, I think about parental choice, the, and I think it, I think it's, maybe it covers both. So I feel like you learn the most from your students when you teach. Um, and so a few years ago, I was teaching education law, and there was a young woman who, in my class, who had grown up in Dallas, and she was quite poor growing up. She'd actually had a very, very difficult childhood. 
um, had spent, she was a basketball player and, um, but she was really cool. Then she, but she had spent a lot of time, um, you know, in different, her, her home life was challenging, but she was, she had had a hard life, uh, but she had really excelled academically. And, um, and so she, and uh, so, so anyway, we were talking about vouchers and in the class and, uh, and she'd gone to public school. So one of my students said they were arguing about it as they always do. And that's sort of always fun. And, and that one student said to the other student, well, I mean, why do you, um, she said, I wish I could have had a voucher. I wish I could have gone to private school. And another student said, well, why do you care? You're here, you're fine. And, um, and uh, she, she said, I can't remember exactly what the words were, but the, basically she just, she opened up about how, she, how hard it was for her and how much her life might've been different and how much her siblings' life might've been different um, if uh, they had had the opportunity to, to go to, if they'd had an opportunity for school choice and how important that was. And um, to, to think about how important it was for other kids like her. And um, it was just like pin drop silence in the room. <laughs> and I didn't say anything else. I was like, she just made my point. And I also feel like, um, I think that uh, I learned that lesson. I mean, I always learned my, the biggest lessons from my students as well. Um, and, and I think that I, I learn often when I teach it, that you can't, sometimes you, um, that particular student, I wouldn't have expected to have that view, but based on other things. But I, I remember thinking then, you know, uh, it's always important to listen carefully. And it's always important to learn as much as you can about your friends and your, and, and especially the students that are before you, because you can learn as much from them as they can from you. And I think you're, and no preconceived notions. You know, we, we, we don't know what people are thinking, even when we think we do. So I, I think that's a, that's a lovely lesson. And again, it shows you the importance of your work. Um, you're, you're making a difference. And so we're very appreciative of that. Um, so do you have anything that you would tell people to do? You, Catholic school teachers, Catholic school principals, if you could do one thing, this is the thing I would ask you to do in order to help the cause. Um, so I, I guess I would say, you know, we, we talk a lot about advocacy and we talk a lot about, um, about, you know, how to organize. And, um, I, I mean, if I, I would tell the priests that they should preach about this <laughs> and not be afraid to talk about this and how important it is. Uh, but I would say to the, to the teachers, and to the parents, um, especially in, in these states that have parental choice programs, we had 12, well, no, a new one just came out. So I think 13 or 14 programs were passed or expanded this year. Yeah, um, I think we're up to 37 states. Right. So, so one of the things that's most important in the school choice movement is not just getting programs passed, but making them work. And in order to make them work, that has to be hard work on the ground. Uh, among um, parents uh, who are sending their kids to private schools for the first time, among parents who are welcoming children to their children's schools, who may be a, a year or two behind, may come from different cultural backgrounds, racial backgrounds, just to be welcoming. And um, on the parents, I mean, on the teacher's part, 
that it's hard work sometimes to integrate a classroom with kids that may have different disciplinary, they came from public schools, different disciplinary expectations, uh, different homework expectations. And so um, I guess I would say like an, it's an all hands on deck. Uh, pro, uh, my advice would be do it, it's worth it. Because if we can't show when we get the programs that they work for the kids that need them most, we will lose them. Right. That's that, the, the best defense against the regulation that we're talking about is just to prove that these there's like these are lifesavers for real people. Um, and and to to so that and for those of us who are in the movement who are in Catholic schools, I also think we can all um, pray for uh, the folks that are going to be, you know, in states like Kentucky, Missouri, West Virginia, New Hampshire, Kansas, Arkansas, all of these new programs, all of these new kids coming into schools, we can pray for them and um, and offer to those of us who have seen this uh, work and not work, we can offer to help. That, that's excellent. And sometimes we overlook prayer. <laughs> and again, it, it's a good thing. I always take any prayer. Anybody who wants to pray for me, please feel free. It, it, I will take it. So, so Nicole, thank you for being with us. Our guest has been Nicole Garnett and she is at the University of Notre Dame and she's out there advocating and working for all of our Catholic schools and our and potential students. And so we really appreciate your work and thank you to all who are listening to the NCA podcast. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you.